Well, we have just finished a section that we were calling questions for Jesus, and we noted last week that many people have questions about God and about Jesus. Some of the questions are genuine inquiries, some are not. Some people legitimately want to know more about Jesus, while others want to disprove Jesus and discredit his followers. And, you know, as I talk to people and observe different things, it it seems to me that a lot of people, and I would run the spectrum from believers to atheists and, and everything in between, that a lot of people just believe what they're told. They don't really take the time to investigate a lot of things. For example, sometimes I'll meet people and they will say to me, I don't believe in God. And I will say to them, well, why don't you tell me about God? Because the God you don't believe in is probably the God I don't believe in either. Because people have, there's all different kinds of gods and there's all different kinds of perceptions of gods. And really, few people really think it through who is this person, who is this Savior, who is this Jesus Christ? Well, to set the scene, it's Passover week in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Jesus is in the temple. The city is packed. He has been, uh, he was teaching, then he was fielding questions from the religious leaders who were trying to trap him, and, and they're trying to discredit him, but they failed each time. And it began with, with, with this question. After the triumphal entry, after all the people were yelling things out, the son of David, which we'll be talking a lot about today, they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And they said, and who, this was in chapter one, and who gave you this authority? Let's just put it in our layman's term. Who do you think you are? You come into our house and you're rearranging the furniture and you're telling everybody that you know what's going on and we don't know what's going on and, and, and who in the world do you think you are? And so they began those series of questions, but now the tables are turned. It's, it's time for questions from Jesus, and we just really get one day of it, and then next week we go into the, into the woes, which is really, it's an intense section of the scriptures. But Jesus is not trying to discredit the religious leaders as much as he is he's in the process of revealing himself to people and showing them where his authority comes from. So their question of, of, of what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority is legitimate, and he's going to answer that question finally for them really today. And so the, Jesus' goal is to show the religious leaders and the people that are there in the temple what the Scripture teaches about the Messiah. So the crowds of people in the temple, that so you and I can see who Jesus really is. And the way Jesus goes about it, and I'll weave a little bit here and there about it, but I would encourage you to take this passage, maybe tomorrow if you're, if you're off and uh, you know, just relaxing or something like that, take this passage, go through it very slowly, and ask yourself, how did Jesus talk to people about himself? How did he actually do it? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. You've probably seen a hundred million terrible examples of how, of how people do it. And so today we're going to learn from the master. We're going to see how he does it. And hopefully uh, when we talk to people in the, in the future, we will be better at it. And so what he does is he begins with a question. And he asks a lot of questions in this little short passage. And the question is the question that we should be asking people. It's a great intro question, and it's also the title of our message, and it is, what is your opinion of Jesus? What is your opinion of Jesus? So if you're taking notes, we're going to break it down into three things that we want to look at today. Number one is Jesus' simple question. Jesus' simple question. Verse 41 and 42, I'm going to interrupt it so bad, I want to read it to you twice, so first I'll read it through and then I'll interrupt. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. So let's go slowly. While the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders, were gathered together, so there's the scene, probably the same guys that were talking to him last week. They're still there. Jesus asked them, and so now it's Jesus' turn. You've been asking me questions for a while. Now I'm going to ask you a few of my own. In verse 42, saying, what do you think? Some of your versions say, what is your opinion about the Christ, 
about the Messiah. Now, who, what, do you, what do you mean, Christ, Messiah, which, which is it? Christ is the Greek translation of, of, the, of the Hebrew word. And so they're waiting for this Messiah. So he doesn't, he doesn't specifically say, what do you think about me? He says, what's your thoughts on the Messiah? What's your thoughts on the chosen one, the anointed one, the one that you know God is sending, the one that you have been waiting for for years and years? What do you think about him? And now that's a general question. Some of the people sitting there in the crowd are probably thinking, hmm, what do I think about him? I'm thinking, I can't believe the prophet from Nazareth is actually cares what I think. And so Jesus, we know, is talking about himself. And, and, and the idea of Jesus as Messiah is absolutely repulsive to the religious leaders, absolutely makes them sick. And so after asking them what they think, Jesus presses a little further. He asks another question, and he says to them, whose son is he? Now, this is really not a question that's of opinion. This is a, this is a Bible question. These are religious leaders, and they're thinking, oh, this is great. I can't believe this guy asked this easy, easy question. We're asking him all the trick questions, and he's asking us stuff we know the answer to. And they said, the son of David, because they knew that's what, the, what we call the Old Testament, their Hebrew scriptures. That's what the, the Hebrew scriptures taught, that the Messiah would be a son of, not a direct son of, but son of, in their culture, meant descendant of, the, of David himself. So it seems, again, that the Pharisees from last week that were there were, may still be there. They had been them and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the, and the Pharisee interns. They, everybody who came and asked the questions of Jesus were defeated, but they still refused to see Jesus as Messiah. And so what they were doing was something that a lot of us do and a lot of people do, is they were asking questions to support their views. And I think that you're going to find, and as you, the, the world keeps progressing the way it is, you're going to find a lot of people, they're going to ask you questions that's going to support their views. And we have to become more skilled at speaking with people like this. And you say, how do I become more skilled at it? Well, you can buy books on how to talk to people about it. And that, that is one way. And, and once I say you have your sea legs, you know what that means? Okay, I'm a seafaring youth, so uh, why don't you have your sea legs on, on your faith and where you stand in your faith. Then you actually are ready, some of you are ready, to start reading opposing views. I don't mean you read the views of people who believe as you believe and, and how they oppose other people, but actually read the people you completely disagree with. Because, let's be fair, I hear a lot of people on television or on podcasts or YouTube or something like that talking about the Christian faith, and they are completely misrepresenting so many of the positions of the Christian faith. Now, I'm not so naive to think that Christians don't do the same thing. So I want to know what the proponents of views that I might be opposed to or I might disagree with or I don't fully understand. I want to know how they think, but, you know, not everybody's really into that kind of stuff because the reality is it is very easy to lock ourselves into our own conclusions, isn't it? It's very easy to think we know what we're talking about, we know our stuff, we're, we're here, this is where we are, and, and not be willing to have our mind changed, even by God. So dis, to discredit Jesus, they, they asked him about taxes, they asked him about marriage in heaven, and they asked him about the greatest commandment. Now Jesus turns to them and it's kind of like he says, all right, well, let's get to it. I mean, come on, <laughs> we've got we to get moving here. There's a lot of stuff to do. It's getting late. Let's, let's do it. And so Jesus asked them really the most important question he could ask them, and it's tied to the most important question he could ever ask us. And the question is regarding what theologians call Christology. Now, Christology is the study of the Christ. It is the study of the Messiah as Christians. We believe it is the study of of Christ himself, but he's asking these guys, you, you, you're waiting for the Messiah, you know the scriptures, let's talk about the Messiah and what do you know about the Messiah. So his question is simple, what do you think, what's your opinion about the Christ, about the Messiah? What a great opener, <laughs> what a great opener. Just to, if you ask people, most people will tell you what they think, and then they'll be willing to listen to what you say. Some people won't, but that's okay. But listen to people, ask them what they think. And, and as we've been saying, that the people all along have really wanted their idea of the Messiah, their idea of the Christ, the coming one, the one they were waiting for, would be a, a liberator from the Roman Empire. But 
that was their view. That was their opinion. That was their, their idea. That was what they wanted. And today, there are lots of opinions about Jesus. I mean, just go out. You ask people you know. This summertime's here. Maybe get invited to a barbecue or something like that. Meet your neighbor on the street, walking the dog, or whatever it is. You happen to talk, and they go, oh, I see you in your family running out, running out to church on the morning, toting Bibles and fighting with one another. What's up with that? <laughs> so so you, just, you just say to them, you know, oh, yeah, I go to church. I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, you know, well, hey, what do you think about them? Just, and, and see what they say. You know, you might want to hold on to the telephone pole while you're waiting for the answer, but, or strap yourself in or something like that, because you're going to hear all kinds of you know, stuff that's, a lot, some stuff you'll hear that's not true, but a lot, as we're going to talk about in a minute, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that is true, but it's incomplete. And Jesus is going to show us how to work with that. You know, take what they give you and, and how, to, how to work with that to explain it with them. There's all kinds of specials on cable TV. Be very careful. <laughs> Be very careful. Because they're going to put on scholars who say they're biblical scholars, but they're not necessarily proponents of God's word. And so there's opinion after opinion. And uh, we have to stop for a second when we talk to people, and we have to realize that, that we live in a culture where many people say everyone's opinion is valid. That is, of course, until you disagree with them. Then your opinion is not valid. But, but just because someone has an opinion doesn't make it true, does it? No. So that's something that we all have to remember. But Jesus, he, he engages them in that conversation, doesn't make it true. And so in the last section, what did Jesus do? He talked about uh, that, that the love of God and the love of neighbor was the way to fulfill the law or the requirements of God. And that's what Jesus is doing right now. In love, Jesus is explaining to people that faith in him is the only way for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, some people might go, well, Pastor Jim, that might make people feel uncomfortable. Yes, it might, and it probably will. That's okay. But how we deliver that message is very important. It's very important because if, if, you, if you're doing it out of duty, that's just gonna, it's just going to seem like, ugh. Or, or, or if you're trying to do it for reputation, you're like, you know, your friends, you're like, watch me go talk to this guy. I'm going to set him straight, you know. You're probably going to come back with your tail between your legs or they're going to be, you're going to leave and go, what a jerk. So, so we want to be careful the way we, uh, we go about it. But, but when we ask like Jesus does with a heart of love to show people the way to God and, and the way to heaven, um, to have a new life in Christ, it changes everything. And, and here's the thing, they might not believe, but often you will find them more prone to listen. And you may just be a person, we call it planting a seed, or some people have used it as a, as a chain link. Look, think of a chain, and you just may be one link on that chain all the way until you, you, know, you get there, somebody gets there. And, and so they're more prone to listen if you are more prone to listen to them. So, so why is this loving? Why is this loving? Jesus said this, John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. We might say no one goes to heaven. So no one means no one, except through me. So, so what is Jesus saying? If you want to get to heaven, you have to go through me. You're not, I can't, he told in other parts of the scripture, he said, I'm the guy who came from heaven, and I know how to get back to heaven. You've never been there. You don't know how to get there. I'm telling you how to get there. And it's not a way. It's a person that gets you there. And he says, I'm the one who's going to get you there. Now, is that loving to tell people? Well, it is, actually. Is it, if, if you go to the doctor and you're really sick, do you want the doctor to go, you're healthy. You, know, you live to be 100. You've know, you got 100 days. And you don't want that. You want to be told the truth, even if it is uncomfortable. And, and so, even if it makes someone uncomfortable, Jesus is going to tell people the truth. In, in Acts uh, chapter 4, uh, Peter and John were arrested. They were dragged in front of the religious leaders. And Peter starts talking to them about Jesus. In Acts 4.12, he says, Nor is there, in, is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
So he's telling religious people that you're wrong about how to get to heaven. He's telling religious leaders that you are wrong about how to get to heaven. And in all across America, the pulpits are full of a lot of bad information. Now, they may be good, decent opinions, but if you're going to call yourself a Christian and you're going to believe what Jesus said, remember, Christianity is a religion that was founded by a guy who claimed to be God. We're, we're pretty much sure, even, even people who don't believe in Jesus, don't believe that he was God, even secular you know, historians will tell you, we're pretty accurate. We got his words. We, we have what he said, but we just don't believe it. That's, that's their option. Remember, we, we always say that you can believe what you want, but you're, you, know, you can't choose the consequences. We all have that in our lives. We can do a lot of stuff what we want, but we got to deal with the consequences. And so they're telling these religious leaders, you, you're wrong. You're completely wrong about Jesus. Now, this is the pushback you get from a lot of Christian people. They go, well, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I'd say more if I, was, if I knew what to say or, or I was better educated or, come on, Pastor Jim, you're a professional and this is your job. You know, we're going we're gonna to have you take care of these things. Well, let me draw your attention to the very next verse, Acts 4.13. 4, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. So how many of you can be uneducated and untrained? Just a quick show of hands. See, we can all do that, right? We can all do that. Now, should we be educated? Yes. Should we be trained? Yes. But they're talking about in terms of these are basic, these are two fishermen from, from the sticks, right? Remember we said that they, they, the people from Galilee, they had an accent. They needed subtitles on, on like the shows on TV when they were talking so people would understand what they were saying. It's like my grandfather was from Ireland, and he talked like he was always drunk, just got in a fight and had a mouthful of marbles. And I couldn't understand half the time, like, Gramps, I don't know what you're talking about. And, my, and his wife, my grandmother, like, but she, I could understand everything she was. I would dance when she was talking. <laughs> but, but, but so they, these guys are talking in this, this accent. They can't, they can't understand. These guys are uneducated. They're untrained, talking to these city slicker uh, religious leaders. And then it says this, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, that's going to be what's going to give power to your speaking to people about Jesus, is if you have been with Jesus. Because the more you are with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus, and the more you will understand the things of Jesus. And the more you read about Jesus, the more you will see how he talks with people. Very important. Sometimes you're going to be like, Jesus is, he's so kind. And then you're like, oh, he's being so mean. Look at who he's talking to. Look at who he's talking to. When he's talking with people who don't know anything, he's kind, he's gentle, he's, he's, you know, he's entertaining. I find him funny at times. When he's talking to the religious leaders that mislead the people, he is not funny. He is not, he's very serious. And as we're going to see next week, he's, he's, he's really going to uh, go, go at them. And so Jesus reminds here the religious leaders of, of, of what they know, that the answer to who this Messiah is is found in the scriptures. So he asked them, whose son is he? All right, I've already asked you your opinion. Now I want to know, be specific, whose son is he? Son, not a direct son like a father and a son, but whose descendant will he be? In other words, he says to them, who does the scripture teach is the great man that from whom the Messiah will ultimately come from his family line. Now, the religious leaders are probably sitting there going, like high-fiving each other, looking at each other, winking all happy, like, I can't believe this guy, man. We're figuring all these trick questions, and he is asking us these easy, gimme questions. Yeah, that's a strategy. That's a strategy. So he's going after them with easy questions. So they quickly answer. I mean, they don't even pause. They don't, they don't do their unholy huddle. They don't pause. They just quickly answer, son of David, son of David. They knew that the Messiah would be the great King David's greater son. Now, what did they love about King David? He was the gold standard of kings. He really brought the kingdom into glory. But, but there was a lot of things they loved about him. But King David was, a, in, adi- in addition to being the sweet psalmist of Israel, but he was a great warrior. And so what did he do? He kicked out Goliath and the Philistines. He, he kept those guys at, at bay. What do they want from this Messiah? They want somebody who can keep the Roman Empire at bay. 
They want somebody who can kick the Roman Empire. So they think that he's going to be like a, a King David type. Yet the Old Testament, it was very interesting. What They knew this, but, but they didn't quite have a handle on it. Uh, promised an eternal kingdom. If, you, if you're taking notes, it's in a lot of places in the Old Testament, but two prominent places, 2 Samuel 7 and, and Psalm 89. And so there was a mystery that was there that they hadn't quite gotten the answer to. And remember in the Bible, a mystery is not something we can't know. A mystery is something that either needs to be revealed or has only been partially revealed, or it's something that's there, but they don't exactly see it until somebody reveals it to them. So, so they have this eternal kingdom that they kind of have to deal with. And if you recall at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when we covered that uh, earlier in Matthew's gospel, the people were calling Jesus the son of David. That was a messianic term. The, the, the religious leaders were like, you know, shut everybody up, Jesus. Listen to what they're calling you. And Jesus didn't stop anybody from saying it. And the religious leaders hated it. Why? They thought the term son of David was too great for Jesus. They just said it's too much. And Jesus is now going to totally flip the, the, everything around on them and say, no, it's not that it's too great for me. It's not enough for me. Because there's the, there's the son of David coin. And when you flip it over, it says son of God. And so he says, you, you, you can't even accept part about me, but I want you to accept all about me. And just as we have to uh, enlarge some of our correct but limited opinions about Jesus as well. And it's fair to say that the the people in the temple and the religious leaders and and many people we know suffer from traditionalism. A lot of us only know what we've been told. And then we get into the Bible and we're like, my tradition is wrong. That's not right at all. That's not what people tell you stuff. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the apostles taught. And I know some of you have had to deal with this with your family, that you, you, know, you come to become a follower of Jesus, and you were raised in a Christian faith, but not really following Jesus, you know, sort of a fan, but not really a follower. And so then all of a sudden your family says to you, are you telling us what we told you is wrong? And you're like, yes, <laughs> right? And so, and so you're, you're starting to get out of this traditionalism, and, and the religious leaders prided themselves um, in that they believed in the God of the Bible, but like many religious people, they actually didn't know the Bible. They, they didn't know the Bible at all. And, 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 and what happens is, you know, people start to take their tradition, and that becomes more important than the Bible. They'll never say it. They don't say it. They're like, well, no, we, are, you know, we, have our, we have the Bible up high here and the tradition's down here. It's, it's important, our tradition, but we have to keep things in perspective. But in faith and practice, it's totally reversed. It's like what we say goes and what's in the Bible, just forget about it. And so the, the religious leaders and the people, because they've learned from the religious leaders, have a, have a limited view of what the son of David means and while he is also, while he is King David's descendant, as we're going to see, the scripture teaches he's also David's Lord. So what does that mean? It means the Messiah is not only a man, he is also God. And he's going to prove it by the miracles and ultimately by rising from the dead. But if you've been with us in our studies of Matthew, which we, studied, we started, um, okay, a while ago... <laughs> 2016, December, I think, you know that Matthew's been telling us this since chapter 1. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to you if you've been here for all that time. He's been telling us since chapter 1, uh, when the angel appeared to Joseph, uh, Matthew tells us ver- chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and he's, he t- quotes Isaiah seven fourteen from about 700 years earlier, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So now Jesus is going to progress them. He's asked some simple questions. What do you think? Hey, tell me what your opinion is. Then he gets a little bit more specific. Well, whose son is he? And then number two, Jesus' deeper questions. 
He's going to get he's going to get into some some deeper stuff here. And and that comes to uh, verse 43 and 45 through 45. It says uh, he said to them, I'm going to read it twice. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So let's go slowly. He said to them, how then? So what's Jesus doing? He's asking another question. But notice the progression of the questions. He's, he's getting people that have a closed mind. And he's not just dumping a bunch of information on them. What, what is he doing? He's getting them to think. He's getting them to actually question themselves about what they believe. So he said, how then does David in the spirit? Now, this is, a, this is a somewhat of a cultural thing. It's a biblical thing, but it's a cultural thing. All those people there would have believed that when King David wrote, by, by, wrote the Bible, that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was, was, was guiding him as he wrote. So we see the individual personalities of the Bible writers coming through, but yet what they're writing is God's word. And so it says, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, written about a thousand years earlier by King David. And it's interesting, if you turn there, underneath it, it says a Psalm of David. Now, you don't need to turn there. You'll have to, you can you know, go home and check me out on this. But that's actually part of the Psalm. A lot of times there's stuff that, that you see in italics that's added or those pesky headings that they put on sometimes that we don't like. Uh, but when it actually says it, it says a Psalm of David, that, that's part of the Psalm so we know who wrote it. It's hugely important that David wrote this Psalm. Hugely important when you hear what Jesus has to say. Because if anybody else wrote it, then what does it make a difference? David would go, well, I never said that. But no, David's writing it and you will meet David in heaven. He'll go, yeah, I wrote that. Yeah, I wrote that. And so, and so he says, he quotes Psalm 110.1, and it says, verse 44, The Lord, that, that would be Yahweh, said to my Lord. And that would be Adonai. Very, very common name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the word in the New Testament, the Greek word is kurios. Very common name for God, name for deity. So we could say verse 44 is saying, um, that God is speaking to God. He's, Jesus says, then how then is God speaking to God? And he says to him, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, it's very interesting. That word sit is, is a continuous word, and it means continue to sit. You will always be continuing to sit, continue to sit. You, will, you sat in the past, you sit now, and you will sit forever. And he says, sit at my right hand. That is the seat of honor. But if you will, it's also the seat of equality. In other words, you're gonna, they're going to sit there and they're going to make decisions about the cosmos, about the universe, about everything. He says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so then Jesus keeps pressing them. He keeps pressing them. He goes, what's going on with that verse? What, what do you, what, what's going on there? And he keeps pressing them and he gets them deeper and deeper to think by posing what appears to be a paradox. A paradox, again, is it appears to be a contradiction. And he asks them, verse 45, he says, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, remember, there's crowds there. There's crowds there in the temple. The regular people, you know, the, like us, the garden variety people, we're sitting in the back, and we're watching these, these great minds go at it. And so the best minds in all of Israel is up there, and they're, they're, they're trying to duke it out with the carpenter from Nazareth. And what Jesus is doing is absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. What he's doing them is he is moving them from what they know to what they don't know. What a, this is, I'm like, this dude is so smart, right? He's God. Why am I surprised, right? So he's moving them from what, they don't, from what they know to what they don't know. So what is he doing? He starts with the point of agreement. He starts with the point of agreement, doing the data dump on them, and then challenging them with a question and getting them to think. What is he doing? He's going after their traditionalism 
and their current cultural values by quoting Psalm 110, which for them culturally, I understand some people we're going to talk to are not going to put any faith in the scripture at all, but, but some people will. And he, he, he quotes Psalm 110, which was widely accepted as a messianic psalm. And, and so Jesus is showing every one of us that would say we are Christians in name that, that it's an important thing that when we have an opinion and the scripture proves our opinion wrong, that we need to change our opinion. Remember we said last week, we're not cafeteria Christians. We're not walking down with our, with our tray going, yeah, I'll have some of that. Oh, I don't like that stuff. Upsets my stomach. Uh, I'll have some of that. Oh, that's good. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. You know, we, we can't be that. We either take it all or we don't. And a lot of times we don't understand it. It takes a little bit of time to get to the bottom of what God is talking about here. And, and so we also want to be careful, as we'll talk about next week, that we're not trusting blind guides, that we're not trusting people who really don't know what they're talking about just because someone has rabbi, father, you know, reverend, pastor in front of their name. That doesn't mean you have to trust them. You go home and you check me out. I have no problem with that. No problem with that. You know, if you want to call me reverend, then I know you don't know me. So, but if pastor, you know, I'm an ordained minister. What does that mean? That means if I have $5 just like you, I can get a drink at Starbucks. That's all it means. That's all it means. So, so it doesn't mean anything. And so he, the blind bleeding, leading the blind. The Messiah was to be a descendant of King David. And Jesus was, through his mother Mary, the, the two, uh, two of the Gospels tell us this, and through his adopted father, Joseph. Now, back then, uh, ancestry was very important, and they kept those records at the temple. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there, there went the records. But this was something that even the religious leaders did not deny so much about Jesus. They knew that his mother, his birth mother, they knew that she was an ancient descendant of David. They knew that his adoptive father, Joseph, was an ancient descendant of King David. What they argued with Jesus was this. They said to Jesus, we weren't born out of fornication. We don't know who your father was. You know, and, you know, Mary said it was the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be honest for a second. How many, you know, young girls have ever come up to you and said, I'm pregnant? And you say, oh, really, who's the father? Oh, the Holy Spirit. You're like, oh, yeah, great. Okay, so there would be, a, there would be some doubt about that, certainly among, among the people. But, but that's why they, you know, accuse Jesus of being born, of being an illegitimate child. There's no illegitimate children. There's only illegitimate parents. And so, and so they, they accused him of that, but they knew they couldn't argue the point from the ancestry. So that, this is long before Ancestry.com. You could just go to the temple, throw a few shekels in, and say, I want to know who my family is. And they kept meticulous records. But being greater than King David the warrior the son of David would establish an eternal kingdom in a new and unusual way. And that's one of the big reasons why people missed Jesus back then and why they still miss him today. That's why this, this health and wealth thing is so popular. You know, people go, well, if you really trust in Jesus, if you really have enough faith, you'll be rich. And they can pack in thousands go to the church. The only guy with the nice car is the guy preaching that gobbledygook. He's the only guy with it. And we were exporting that stuff all over the world. It's terrible. It's terrible. People think, oh, we're exporting all the filth of pornography all over the world. Yes, we're also exporting the worst religion the world has ever seen. And so, and so we're exporting that stuff. Or the people who would say that, well, you know, you'll, you know what? You might be wealthy. God bless you. God bless you, but you might not be. doesn't mean you don't have faith. Other people say, well, if you have enough faith, you'll always, you'll, you'll always be healthy. That's really cruel. It's actually really cruel to say that to people. You're going to sit somebody and they're, they're deathly ill, and you're going to tell them because they, because they don't have enough faith? One of the founders of that movement, it really just started you know, maybe 75 years ago. One of the founders of the movement was fond of saying, never had a cold in my life. Never had a cold in my life. He never mentioned he had four heart attacks. So, but people take, uh, and, and a big part of the problem is people misunderstand Jesus because they have their own concept 
of what God should be. And don't you hate it when people say things about you that are not true? We all don't like that. And so God has to deal with it all the time. He's bigger than any of us. For Jesus being Messiah meant that he was not going to be like King David. It meant, it meant he was going to be a teacher. It meant that he was going to be a healer. It meant that he was going to use all those miracles to, to show compassion and the love of God and evidence of who he was and that, that his way of, of being the great, the great Messiah would be the king that would die for his people, as Matthew said in chapter 1, that he would save his people from their sins. So Jesus' big question to these people is, why does King David call his descendant Lord? Why? Quick show of hands. How many of you have sons? Sons, I have two of them. How many of you call your son Lord? (laughs) I'm not asking if he thinks he's God's gift to the world. (laughs) I'm asking if you call him Lord. No, you you probably don't do that. If you do, you need counseling. In Jewish culture, a, a son was not considered to be greater than his father, yet Jesus is saying it's written in the scriptures. You don't need to, don't take my word for it. You esteem King David. You know that he wrote it by the inspiration of the Spirit. It says that King David called his descendant Lord. And a lot of people will say, you know, and they'll, they'll put religious scholar in front of them that God become a man is, is only in the New Testament or that it's a tradition that came on later. Wrong. Wrong. Clearly, it is an Old Testament concept. And Psalm 110 is actually the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament because it points to an eternal victorious king that is equal to God. So Jesus' point where he's driving them to is simply this, that the Messiah is both King David's descendant and his Lord that he is both human and divine, that he is both man and God. Now, that might make some people perplexed for sure, but the religious leaders are sitting there knowing what he's doing. He's claiming to be King David's son and to be King David's God, and they are rejecting Jesus as Lord. In the New Testament, the Apostle John, who traveled with Jesus three-plus years in his earthly ministry, opens up his gospel, his, his history, historic account of life of Jesus by saying this, John 1, 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word. Later in the chapter, he explains that, that he means by that is Jesus, the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So the light came into the world, but the world was dark. In John 3 it says, Light came into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. And so the light came into the world, but the world rejected the light. They failed to see the identity of Jesus. The same chapter, a few verses down, verse 14, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh, became a man. The eternal Logos, who in verse verse 3, all things were made through him, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down and he walked among us and we beheld his glory. Interesting, that word dwelled actually means tabernacled or, or set, his, set up his tent. He came in an earthly tent like we have, and he dwelt among us. John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is answering the question, who is it that Psalm 1101 is talking about? It is the man that is standing there in the temple. It, it is the man that, that they walked with on earth. And John said, we beheld his glory. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostle Paul wrote these words, Romans 1, 2 through 4, which he, God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was human and declared to be the son of God 
he was divine, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul saying? He's saying the same thing that David said, the same thing that Jesus is saying. Jesus Christ is the son of David by birth, but he is also the son of God as confirmed by being raised from the dead. Therefore, he is the light of the world and the Lord of the universe who offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life because it's only he can offer that to any and all who will, as Jesus said, repent and believe To repent is to turn, to turn to God, to believe is to put your trust in Jesus instead of yourself. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he's talking about how Israel were God's people. They were given all the the privileges of being God's people. They were given the promises of the Messiah, and they rejected Jesus. He says, Romans 9, 5, of whom are the fathers and of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, he was human, who is overall the eternally blessed God, he was divine. Amen. Well, that leads us to the third point, and really for most of us here today, this, after hearing what we hear, this is, this is where we have to apply what we've heard. And it's number three, Jesus' personal question. Jesus' personal question, verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. I mean, they looked at each other and like, oh boy, oh boy. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Now, you might sit here and go, Pastor Jim, there's no, there's no personal question here. But I actually think there is. You see, one of the ways you know that God is asking you a personal question is you stop talking. You stop talking. All of a sudden, you, you're in the presence of holiness. You're in the presence of Jesus, and you're just like, ah. And you and you start to you start to think, and the religious answer, the religious leader's answer is a terrible answer because they don't speak, and as we will see as they continue, they continue to default to their self righteous religion. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, again, we're glad you're here, but it's so important to ask ourselves: Have we believed a lie? Have we believed a shaved gospel that, that, that doesn't really, you know, just tells us God will give you everything you want and willfully turned away from God? And next week, Jesus is going to lay into the hyper-religious people, the religious leaders, uh, and he's going to rebuke them for rejecting him. I mean, it's going to be fireworks early. We, Jesus is going to let the fireworks go off before the 4th of July, and he's going to use the word woe. And if there is one word you do not want God to say to you, it is the word, whoa. <laughs> you do not want to hear that from him. And, and the basic problem really came down to this. And this is something that, if you're new here, you, you may have encountered this before, or may, many of us would say this was our thing growing up, or, or the people that you know are in the midst of it right now, is, is the basic problem was this. They revised the word of God to fit their own agenda. And it became their tradition. And the people followed them. Do we have that? They, they took the word of God. They revised it. They twisted it to fit their own agenda. And it became their tradition. And people began to follow the tradition instead of the Christ. They began to follow the religious leaders instead of Jesus. And so the personal question for all of us is, will we see what the Scripture teaches us about Jesus Christ, and will we act on it with faith and trust, or will we continue to be passive bystanders? Will we challenge the contemporary opinions about Jesus and embrace the divine truth of Jesus? Will we turn from naturalism. And this is something that we all are really a part of. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Naturalism is, I only believe what I can see. Will we turn from naturalism and embrace supernaturalism? Embrace the heavenlies? So the question is, what do you think about the Christ? What is your opinion about Jesus? The standard answer from a lot of people is this. 
You'll ask a lot of people, some people don't believe, and that's fine. It's a great conversation to have with people. Other people are going to say this to you. He died on the cross for our sins. I told the people Wednesday night, when people say that to you, you should hear the trumpets of heaven and the angels singing, because oh, now the door is ready for the real conversation. And what do you do? You say to them, let's pretend for a second that I don't know anything about Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know anything about this Jesus Christ. You told me he died for his sins. Can you please explain to me what that means? And most people will go, he died on the cross for our sins. I go, you're repeating yourself. Can you please explain to me what that means? And very few people can. It means with Jesus for, the word for a lot of times in the Bible means because. Jesus died because of our sins. Sometimes it means in place of. Jesus died for us in place of us for our sins. It alludes to the word of substitute. Jesus died as a substitute for us for our sins. Jesus took the punishment for our sins meant for us on the cross. Very few people will be able to articulate it. And now by by being respectful and talking to people, you will be able to speak with them about that. And then if they're like, well, I I don't really believe that. Well, just let's all think about this logically for a second. And sometimes we lack logic. It's good to think logically. If Jesus was merely human, what could he do for you? He could do nothing more for you than any human could do. He would be just another famous religious figure. I took, I took comparative religions when I was in college. Four years in college. I think this is the only sentence I remember any of my teachers ever saying. All I remember in college was partying, but that was before I was a Christian. But, but, but I remember comparative religions, and, and my teacher, uh, who was from India, said, well, you know, a lot of world religions, but uh, Christianity is very different. This has the God of, of Christianity dies for the sins of the people against God himself. I was like, wow, wow. I mean, that actually, I was like, that, like, like one sentence encapsulates so much of Christianity. And then, and then I listened to that guy the whole semester, and he talked about Christianity, and I was like, this guy doesn't seem to really believe any of this stuff. I don't know why he told us he was a Christian. He just should have laid it out, the, the, the world religions, and, and let, us, let us think about this stuff. You see, if Jesus was just a human being, he could not have died in your place and in my place for your sins and for my sins. He couldn't take the punishment for our sins. He would have no authority to do that. He couldn't couldn't offer you and I the forgiveness of sins against God. We've, We've all disobeyed God's law. He couldn't offer us the forgiveness of sins. Well, who does he think he is? Like, you know, if you have a friend and they're like, well, you know, so-and-so ripped me off. You don't go, well, I, I, you know, I forgive them. <laughs> well, he didn't rip you off, man, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't do that. And so, and so we, he, he couldn't forgive our sins if he wasn't God. And how could he promise us heaven? Jesus said, I'm the one who came from heaven, and I know I came down, and I know the way back to heaven. But it, how could he promise us that if, if he wasn't God? How could, how could God so dramatically change some of the people in this church? One week, man, they're like partiers and drugs and ripping people off. And the next week, they're like, oh, I'm following Jesus now. I don't, you know, like, I don't do drugs anymore. I'm doing all the same stuff I was before. I'm like, am I Christian? I'm like, sounds like it might be. That, that this doesn't happen. People, how do they get the power to live for God? They're totally changed. And so all they did, all they can tell you was, I asked God to forgive my sins and I put my trust in him. And I don't even know what happened after that. I don't even know what happened after that. You see, the silence of the religious leaders speaks volumes. And they are at a heaven and hell crossroad right now. Some of them are going to put their trust in Jesus. Some of them are. But most of them are not. What will they do? What will they do with Jesus? And it's too late for them. But what will you do with him? You've got to do something with him. If you put your trust in him, then you're forgiven. You go to heaven. He said, not me. If you don't, you're not going. In fact, the scripture teaches that you're, we're actually all, all born destined to go to hell. We actually have to put our trust in Jesus in order to change our destination. 
And people say, I got no problem with Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. That's not a position. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's no, there's no in between. And I had no problem with Jesus. It's not a for position. Now, you're saying, are you trying to make us feel guilty? No, I'm not at all, man. Not at all. There's almost virtually nothing that keeps me up at night. I'm one of those people, I hit the pillow and boom, I'm gone. But the fact that people could come to our church and sit here for years and not end up in heaven, that really troubles me. That really troubles me. They couldn't answer Jesus. And now I'm just, I'm just doing conjecture. I have no idea if what I'm about to say next is true. They couldn't answer Jesus. True. But one day a young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, true, now comes the conjecture, possibly in Jerusalem at that time, possibly one of the interns that got sent to ask a question of Jesus, I don't know, was able to answer it. He was able to answer everything about Jesus and how he answered the, the silence of, of us when we, we encounter God. Romans three nineteen through 20. He said, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, it's when you stop, when you stop talking and you realize, I could not stand before a holy God. That is the place of salvation. That is the place where God wants to bring every one of us to. I've told you many times before, people say, well, how did it all start for you? Simply this, I couldn't get it over my lips. I kept going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because I realized I had snubbed God my whole life. I went to religious school. I had clergy in my family, and I snubbed him. And then he goes on, therefore, by the deeds of the law... Anybody who wants to say they're a good person, here we go. No flesh, nobody will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In chapter 10 of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel. He says this, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved from your sins against God. Now here's the interesting thing. The prophet Joel was writing hundreds of years before Jesus came. He was talking about Yahweh. The apostle Paul was talking about Jesus. Same scripture, talking about Yahweh, talking about Jesus, God become a man. John again, chapter 1 says this, verse 12. But as, as many as received him to them, and the idea is to them and only to them, he gave the right to become children of God, and the, to those, the idea is to only those who believe, who put their trust in Jesus in his name. My prayer is that today, may King David's Lord be your Lord too. And that we all leave here today confident, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we can be confident that we are all children of God because we're trusting in him instead of trusting in ourselves. Well, let's pray.